Welcome to Expert Views on ADR Ever, a podcast about simplifying the traditional African method of selling disputes or alternative disputes resolution, ADR, in a bid to attract more users to settle their disputes or conflicts with these alternatives, mediation, arbitration, negotiation, conciliation, and of course, early neutral evaluation. My name is Chinwe Ebonike, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Brighton, United Kingdom, and a fellow of the American Bar Association section of Dispute Resolution Mediation Committee. I am delighted to welcome David Hoffman to the EVA show. David teaches courses on collaborative law and mediation at Harvard Law School. He also serves on the faculty of the program on negotiations, Harvard Negotiation Institute, where he teaches the advanced mediation workshop, Mediating Complex Disputes. He is the founder of the Boston Law Collaborative LLC. He once served as the chair of the American Bar Association section of dispute resolution. It is imperative to mention that since 2008, David has taught the mediation course previously handled by the late Professor Frank Sander. Frank Sander is the founder of the multi-door courthouse in America. Um, this multi-door courthouse, um, MDC, has been replicated in some jurisdictions. David wears too many hats, so I've left the link to his profile below. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop sharing. For coming on the show the second time, David, I'm so grateful that you agreed to come a second time. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Thanks. All right, without wasting much of your time, the first question is, what led to the birth of the American Bar Association section of this resolution? Well, I think the history can be traced uh, back to uh, changes in American law that took place in the uh, 1940s, late 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s with the expansion of pretrial discovery. Uh, previously, uh, there wasn't as much um, of a right to obtain information before a trial, uh, but um, the courts greatly expanded uh, those uh, discovery rights. And uh, the, the thought behind that was, let's make uh, trial more efficient, because rather than use the element of surprise, um, we'll exchange information in advance, and many cases will settle um, uh, because of that exchange of information. So I, I don't disagree with that policy. Uh, I think it's a, a very sound policy. Um, what happened, however, was that the cost and uh, time involved in litigation expanded greatly. Um, yeah. And that had a, a, a number of uh, uh, problems. It, it crowded the court docket, yeah. uh, both at the state and federal level. So that meant people's access to justice was more limited. It also meant that uh, uh, parties with deeper pockets had an advantage because they could engage in this pretrial discovery and people who didn't have as much money and couldn't afford lawyers or um, couldn't afford, you know, battalions of lawyers uh, uh, were at a, a disadvantage. Um, so uh, out of that uh, concern, 
there developed this uh, American Bar Association uh, committee yeah. to uh, a standing a standing committee to focus on what were then called minor disputes because the thought was well um, we don't need all that apparatus of discovery for smaller stakes disputes and maybe they would be better resolved uh, uh, with mediation uh, or arbitration yeah. or maybe we should increase the funding for small claims courts maybe um, and as you uh, know in 1976 Frank Sander gave a very influential talk at the Pound mm -hmm. Conference saying, let's have a multi-door courthouse yeah. um, so that the, the big complicated cases might go to trial or they, they might go to mediation. You, you mm -hmm. don't know. The, the question is, are the parties willing to go some route other than uh, traditional litigation. Mm -hmm. So that the pound conference, and then the, uh, shortly thereafter, the creation of this standing committee uh, yeah. by the uh, ABA, uh, that was the seed that was planted. And mm -hmm. Frank deserves uh, the credit. There were others involved, but he yeah. was the one who, who did that. And that then grew into the um, ABA section of dispute resolution. All right. Well, thank you so very much for that. Um, so as a past chair of the section, what were the major obstacles and challenges faced at the inception of the section? So I think uh, two two major obstacles. The first one mm -hmm. uh, was that there were lots and lots of lawyers who uh, had never studied uh, alternative dispute resolution in law school and knew very little about it because mm -hmm. the field was uh, it was quite new. Uh, when when they received their legal education, and so I remember when I first uh, started getting involved with uh, ADR, one of the questions I would ask at uh, workshops or presentations, I'd ask the audience, "Please raise your hand if you would feel comfortable explaining to a client the difference between mediation and arbitration," and very few hands went up. Um, in later years, I would say, you know, maybe starting about 20 years ago, uh, 15 years ago, uh, I would ask the same question and many more hands would go up. And I think if I asked the question today in a, a group of lawyers, probably the majority of hands would go up, but not all the hands. Yeah. We, we still have more education to do. And this is a this is an easy question. This yeah. isn't, you know, a complicated ADR question, a very simple question. Mediation is facilitated negotiation. Arbitration is private adjudication. Um, any lawyer graduating from law school and uh, being admitted to the bar should know at least that much, and and I would say more, yeah. about the alternatives to, uh, to uh, courtroom uh, conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I said there are two obstacles. So one was the lack yeah. of knowledge. Yeah. But the, the other was the, I think, uh, understandable concern yeah. that if we have alternative systems of dispute resolution, uh, one of two things could happen. And, and, they're, and they're opposite. Um, but uh, either one would be unfortunate. So one concern was that uh, low-income people would be shunted aside 
to alternative forms of dispute resolution, and only the well-heeled would have access to the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And the concern there was because uh, most forms of alternative dispute resolution are private, that uh, the public wouldn't see what's happening in the cases that involve people with the fewest resources. And mm -hmm. so they would be consigned to what was called second-class justice. So that was one side of the concern. The other concern was sort of the opposite, which was that if you had enough money, you could hire mediators and oh. you could resolve your cases in private. And so big corporations facing major uh, liability because of misconduct of one kind or another, um, they could uh, pay an arbitrator or pay a mediator uh, to resolve their case outside of the public view. Now, um, I would say that ADR um, uh, is uh, legitimately uh, criticized for yeah. creating those possibilities. Um, but I don't think uh, it, it's really um, been as grave a problem as some would say. I'll, I'll give you um, one example. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of controversy about Harvey Weinstein and his sexual misconduct and criminal acts against women. Yeah. Um, uh, he was able to resolve many of those conflicts uh, privately through negotiation. Now, we don't know the extent to which mediators, uh, if any, were used. Uh, but that's an example of a very serious uh, s a series of crimes. Yeah. Uh, being, uh, you know, uh, resolved uh, behind the scenes. Now, of course, he faces public criminal prosecution, but in the private lawsuits, uh, those were uh, hidden from view. Mm -hmm. And many of the people who were victimized uh, by Harvey Weinstein and, uh, and, and, and others um, had signed non-disclosure agreements and also arbitration agreements saying that they oh. would resolve any agreement privately. So um, there's the very legitimate criticism of private dispute resolution right, yeah. in the area where arbitration is mandated uh, before the dispute even arises. So that's been a controversial issue, as you know. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so very much. This has been um, insightful. I wanted to ask about um, the lawyers' reactions you know, what, 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 what was their reactions like? Well, I think uh, there's a range of reactions. I think mm. there were many lawyers who yeah. thought uh, this is uh, having the American Bar Association section of dispute resolution uh, was a way of handling conflicts that really shouldn't be in court. Um, and that's why the, the first version of the section was about, quote, minor disputes, because the lawyers in the American Bar Association, who tend to be you know, successful, uh, busy uh, lawyers, many of them from, uh, from big firms, but not all. We have many, many members who are from small, medium, and, yeah. and solo firms. But I think many of them thought, well, sure, it's good to have this section because if there's a dispute between neighbors over a fence or a barking dog or some minor dispute, yeah, yeah let's get that out of the court. Yeah. Um, so they welcomed that. 
Um, but I think there are other lawyers who were concerned um, that it might threaten the livelihood of lawyers hmm. uh, and, and, and looked at what we were doing from a very parochial standpoint. And I'll give you an example of that. So Frank Sander and I were yeah. at a meeting of the Massachusetts Bar Association, not the yeah. ABA, but the uh, MBA. Yeah. And we were giving a talk, sort of the basic introductory talk uh, on uh, alternative dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. I think we were on a panel. I think there may have been one or two others besides. Uh, Sorry, what year was that? Sorry. Well, that's a, this is a good question. I would say it was probably in the 1990s. 1990. Um, and uh, someone raised their hand with a question and we said, yeah. you know, yes. And he said, I don't get it. He said, I, you know, I just got my law degree. I just got admitted to the bar. I'm struggling to make a living. And you're telling me that if a case comes along, uh, I should send it to mediation. And I, I need that case. Why would I send it to mediation? That wouldn't make any sense at all. Um, and Frank and I looked at each other and we sort of smiled because it was like, uh, the lawyer who asked that question had not really focused on the fact that he has a fiduciary duty to his clients to handle the case in the best possible way. Yeah. And if the best possible way is mediation. He has an ethical duty to educate the client about mediation and help the client find their way to mediation if that's what they want. They might, they might not. But 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 at a fundamental level, I think what the lawyer had missed is that the way to build a practice is to serve your clients well. Mm. And if you do that, they will tell their friends and neighbors and relatives, and you will be a busy lawyer. Mm. Um, but if you focus on how do I enhance my profit as a lawyer, yeah. um, there are some lawyers who do that, unfortunately, and, yeah. and some may be very successful financially, but they're not in compliance with their ethical duties. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of um, Abraham Lincoln, the, you know, the stand right. that he made, yeah. All right, thank you so very much. So that leads to the um, fourth question, which is with the introduction of the dispute resolution section, what are your assessments of its use, um, the accessibility to the public and how would you assess people's reactions and patronage? So um, I guess there are um, uh, two parts I, I see in that uh, question. Mm -hmm. um, I think the section has uh, done a good job of putting out on its website yeah. uh, public information about alternative dispute resolution. Um, and um, the uh, adoption of ADR uh, around the United States and indeed mm -hmm. around the world has been a great success. Um, in that effort, the ABA section of dispute resolution has just been one of many, many, many participants. Yeah. Um, uh, but having an ABA section of dispute resolution has led to the creation of dispute resolution sections in many of the state uh, bar associations. And I think it's uh, been, it was a pioneer, ABA section was a pioneer, mm -hmm. uh, encouraging 
bar associations in other countries to uh, promote alternative dispute resolution. Mm -hmm. So in that, in that sense, the United States was an early adopter and a pioneer. Uh, however, there are uh, parts of the world where I think uh, ADR has advanced beyond what we've done in the United States. And I want to uh, call out in particular uh, uh, Australia, and mm -hmm. especially in the family law area where the um, provision of alternative dispute resolution is available through the courts, it's publicly funded, it's com it's completely integrated into their system of family law uh, resolution. And it's considered a, a you know the, the, a primary method of dispute resolution. And then you go to court after you've been through some alternative processes. Yeah. And so that uh, reminds us of what many people have said is that ADR, instead of standing for alternative dispute resolution, should stand for appropriate dispute resolution. Yeah. And litigation should be what you do after all else has failed, um, uh, rather than thinking of ADR as kind of a sidetrack. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I quite agree with you. And so many scholars on this show, they've pointed out as well, they should um, be appropriate rather than alternative. Yeah. All right, thank you so very much. So um, recently, the section diversified um, the composition of its members. What necessitated this? And so far, what are the um, advantages recorded so far? Yeah, so, you know, one of the uh, things that uh, many people in the ADR movement have noticed is that we uh, have lacked racial diversity uh, and uh, we have not attracted as many people who serve low-income uh, communities as we should. Um, I think that with regard to uh, gender uh, diversity, yeah. uh, we've done better in, in that area, and the American Bar Association uh, generally has done better. Uh, but the uh, ABA, the American Bar Association, has a legacy of racism that it uh, has been working in recent years very hard to overcome. Uh, it was not until 1943 that people of color could even become members of the American Bar Association. Mm -hmm. And that is a shameful uh, history um, and something that uh, the ABA is uh, working very hard to uh, overcome. Um, and it's important to, to overcome it because uh, for ADR to achieve its full potential, it has to reach all communities. And yeah. if it's going to reach all communities, it means we have to have practitioners who reflect the diversity of the population yeah. here in the United States. And this is a, a problem that exists around the world. I thank you so much. So looking at the ABA, um, what are the notable achievements of the intervention of um, the dispute resolution section? Well, I would say one of the biggest was uh, the involvement of the ABA in um, the uh, Uniform Mediation Act. Okay. And uh, there was a parallel drafting committee. So there's one committee of the Uniform Law Commission and mm -hmm. an ABA committee, and they worked uh, together to create what I think is a uh, 
a really excellent uniform law. Now, I know that ma uh, many people who listen to your uh, podcast yeah. uh, are from uh, countries other than the United States. Yeah. And so I'm going to pause for a moment just to explain that we have a uniform law commission in the United States. And the purpose of the uniform law commission is to create statutes that the various states can enact. So for example, uh, with mediation, we have different laws in every state, every one of the 50 states. And uh, in some instances, having different laws from one state to the next mm -hmm. is a good idea because the states are, th are thought of in the, in the legal system as sort of laboratories. Yeah. Uh, one state tries out, let's say a mediation statute that uh, says that mediation is absolutely confidential and there are no exceptions. And another state says, well, no, mediation is confidential and privileged, but there should be exceptions for things like child abuse or neglect or planned commission of a crime. Or another state like Massachusetts, where I live, adopted a mediation statute that says to be a mediator, you have to have at least 30 hours of training in mediation. Mm -hmm. um, all these different experiments are uh, worthwhile. And then uh, the Uniform Law Commission comes along and looks at all the statutes and mm -hmm. comes up with uniform law. And then the states can decide whether they want to adopt the uniform law or not. One of the uh, biggest successes of the Uniform Law Commission is the Uniform Commercial Code, the UCC. And that was necessary because business transactions across straight state lines need to be uh, managed, regulated by uniform law. If you write a check in the state of Massachusetts for goods that you want to purchase in the state of Connecticut or California, you want that check to be handled and honored uh, in the banking system in the same way, regardless of what state it is. Yeah. So that's been a great success. The Uniform Mediation Act um, has been uh, adopted by uh, quite a few states, but not all states yet. But it's a good example of the ABA uh, uh, being in the lead on an effort that I think was uh, a very worthwhile. Mm, thank you so very much. Uh, so this is the first time I'm hearing about Uniform Laws comm um, Commission and Uniform Mediation Act. So thank you so very much for um, saying it on this on this show. Um, so what areas of this section require improvement? So um, I think along with the entirety of the ABA, our section um, uh, should continue to uh, improve in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, and this is not a critique of the section, but more a critique of the ABA, um, there's one uh, resolution that the ABA section of dispute resolution adopted, yeah. which did not get passed by the ABA House of Delegates. Mm -hmm. And it's the resolution supporting the Uniform Collaborative Law Act. Oh. So while the section has been very supportive of collaborative law, the section has a committee on collaborative law. Uh, it's currently chairs by a, a lawyer from uh, Washington State named Kevin Scudder, 
Uh, I uh, there there have been a number of chairs of that committee. I was uh, the chair at one time of that committee, um, uh, and I I think the section has been a pioneer in advocating for greater use of collaborative law. Now let me pause because there may be one or two people listening to your podcast who've never heard of collaborative law. Yeah. Very simple, very, very simple. It's a uh, a form of conflict resolution where the uh, two, let's say two parties and two uh, uh, lawyers sign an agreement saying that the lawyers won't take the case to court. The clients, the, the parties can go to court if they want, but they have to hire new lawyers to do that. Um, and it's a little bit like in the UK, which you're familiar with, where you have solicitors and barristers. Um, the solicitors can handle negotiations. The barristers go to court. So in the collaborative law system, you're hiring a solicitor. Um, but if you need to go to court, you dismiss the solicitor, mm-hmm. uh, but you hire a barrister. Um, uh, so collaborative law is not exactly revolutionary. We've had it in the UK's legal system for many years. But yeah. in the United States, it was considered very controversial. Um, and when the section of dispute resolution, the Uniform, uniform Law Commission created uh, this Uniform Act, yeah. and the AB section supported it, mm-hmm. the House of Delegates voted it down. Oh. And I think the fear, there was fear on the part of the section of litigation mm-hmm. that it would undermine the the uh, the careers, the professional prospects, the business prospects of the litigators, hmm. uh, and uh, now nobody came out and said that we can't have collaborative law because yeah. litigators need to make a living. Nobody yeah. was that frank, but I think that was part of the uh, concern, uh, unspoken, and mm-hmm. maybe I'm being uncharitable in saying that. But what was spoken by the litigation section is we should not support this because if clients sign a collaborative law participation agreement, they may naively think that this will work out well. Mm. They may not understand once the negotiation gets started uh, how difficult it's going to be. They may not understand that in agreeing to hire new lawyers, they've um, uh, handicapped themselves in ways that they couldn't have anticipated because they're not lawyers, they're not professionals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that argument uh, carried the day. Um, right now, the section is thinking about resubmitting to the House of Delegates. Now that the Uniform Collaborative Law Act has been enacted in a majority of American mm-hmm. states, it's uh, spreading in uh, Europe. Uh, it's uh, and around the the world and mm-hmm. uh, Asia, Africa, um, uh, in uh, Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, I am uh, going to be uh, giving a talk about uh, collaborative law in uh, France and and where collaborative law is developed. Um, so collaborative law has been a success, and I think yeah. embarrassing that the ABA. Uh, yes, uh, delegates hasn't uh, seen the fight yet. I hope they will. Well, fingers crossed. After this, they will. And uh, and uh, and you know, the last time you came on the show, I said I was going to invite you for a collaborative law discussion. I would still want you to come on the show, but I know you're quite busy. So maybe afterwards, we would make our time. 
um, you know, give me dates so you can block it. <laughs> All right, to make sure I get you on the show to talk about collaborative law. Sure. All right, so final question is, what recommendation would you give to improve the usefulness and service of the section in the nearest future? So I think the, the uh, main frontier that uh, we should be focusing on is uh, bringing alternative dispute resolution techniques and knowledge to uh, low-income communities and more mm -hmm. diverse communities uh, all over the United States. Um, and uh, part of that requires uh, creating more support for pro bono uh, systems and also for greater adoption uh, and, and uh, public funding for alternative dispute resolution in our court systems. Uh, right now, for example, uh, if you go into the district court mm -hmm. and small claims court uh, here in Massachusetts, yeah. uh, your case may be referred to mediation. In all likelihood, those mediators are volunteers. And so there's a limited capacity for providing mediation. But if we provided public funding for mediation, as is done uh, in Australia and in other uh, parts of the world, uh, we could greatly expand the reach of alternative dispute resolution to uh, a, a wider sector of the population. And so I think the American Bar Association uh, uh, can and, and, and should uh, yeah. make a greater effort to promote public funding of uh, these forms of dispute resolution um, not only because uh, it will serve underserved communities, but it will also help our court systems work more efficiently uh, because, you know, I would say the vast majority of cases that are filed in court for civil resolution, as opposed to criminal, focusing yeah. on civil, um, the vast majority would benefit from at least trying mediation. And even in the criminal justice arena, those systems would benefit from more restorative justice uh, mechanisms, uh, which uh, are being used, but are not uh, well-funded at this point. All right. Well, thank you so very much. I, would, I don't mind uh, you know, listening to you, but the, um, um, we are running out of time now. So thank you so very much. This has been, of course, a masterclass, and I truly appreciate you taking our time you know, to come on the show and um, educate us yeah, on the achievements of the American Bar Association thus far. And yeah, thank you so well, very I, much. I, I appreciate the invitation, and uh, I really appreciate the service that you're providing. Thank you so much disseminating knowledge about dispute resolution around the world. Yeah, thank you. I'm following your footsteps. Uh, I'm not there yet, but, you know, poco a poco. All right, thank you so very much. Um, um, to my um, viewers and listeners, or listeners, thank you so very much for your constant support. Stay tuned for more episodes on achievement of the ABA dispute resolution section. That was fun. All right. And before, before we go, um, yeah. Perhaps you should mention that you have yeah. a fellowship with the American Bar Association. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and this is an honored uh, a, a position uh, that you mm -hmm. have received and, uh, and you're doing wonderful work there 
uh, I look forward to talking with you more in the future about. Uh, uh, thank, that. thank you so very much. And also, yeah, I would also um, want to thank the ABA section of this resolution. You know, this shows that they are really um, inclusive and, you know, um, for ha for having me and for having others as well, you know, on the on the fellowship program this year. All right, bye bye. Take care. Cheers.